and welcome to Comically Pedantic, where we take a detailed look at the complicated concepts, characters, and history of comic book culture. I'm your host, Derek L. Chase, and joining me again on this episode is the lovely Austin Rose. Hello. Thank you for coming back uh, and, and, and continuing this journey with me. You're welcome. I had to travel money great distances to be here. <laughs> Uh, so let's, um, let's get back into talking about Scott Adams. Um, this particular episode is the reason why I thought writing about him would be interesting in the first place. Uh, everything that we talked about in the previous episode is kind of just like, uh, build up to now we can talk about like weird shit that he has done. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, So throughout his career, Adams created an online presence, allowing for his comic to be published online for free, one of the first times this had ever happened. Unlike most other creators, he fully embraced every aspect of the growing internet marketplace, and it seemed his fans were more than happy to follow him. In one instance, while writing for the Wall Street Journal, Adams questioned success and its link to education, posting, why do we make B students sit through the same classes as their brainy peers? That's like trying to train your cat to do your taxes, a waste of time and money. Wouldn't it make sense to teach them something useful instead? Uh, wait. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, okay, well, (laughs) uh, I hate that. Um, I guess it's somebody who, you know, primarily got B's and A's all their life. Mostly B's and the occasional C. I feel I feel offended. I feel hurt by that comment. <laughs> <laughs> well, you wouldn't be alone. Uh, Adam's words were not met with praise um, in the way that he had expected. There was a great deal of criticism passed around on Metafilter, but thankfully one fan named Planned Chaos kept to his defense, writing, as far as Adam's ego goes, maybe you don't understand what a writer does for a living. No one writes unless he believes that what he writes will be interesting to someone. Everyone on this page is talking about him, researching him, and obsessing about him. His job is to be interesting, not loved. As someone mentioned, he has a certified genius IQ, and that's hard to hide. Later, responding to more critics, he questioned, So is it Adams' enormous success at self-promotion that makes you jealous and angry? And it turns out that Planned Chaos had been defending Adams for quite some time. Since earlier in the year, he had posted on Reddit, it's fair to say you disagree with Adams, but you can't rule out the hypothesis that you're too dumb to understand what he's saying, and he's a certified genius. So clearly he had at least one fan willing to defend him across multiple platforms and to speak highly of his intelligence, which speaks pretty well of his ability to connect with his audience. It turns out, however, that planned chaos was Adams himself. In a series of posts, he apologized and defended himself by stating, I'm sorry I peed in your cesspool and adding smart people were on to me after the first post. That made it funnier. Then eventually, on his own blog, continued with, Conflict of interest is like a prison that locks in both the truth and the lies. One workaround for that problem is to change the messenger. That's where an alias comes in handy. When you remove the appearance of conflict of interest, it allows others to listen to the evidence without judging. And unfortunately for him, he doesn't seem to grasp that this method of defense is actual conflict of interest. His method of using the internet is astounding. Uh, In one instance on Twitter, I found someone who had disagreed with Adams, and he went through her entire timeline to like anyone that had disagreed with her in any previous conversation. 
She was so impressed by this, she claimed she wanted to be on that same level someday. Basically, she wants to be that fucking petty. (laughs) He has ventured out from comics and publishing to create new businesses like his brief foray into the food and drink industry, like his somewhat infamous Dill Burrito, a vegan microwave burrito that stopped production in 2003. Sounds horrible. (laughs) The The inspiration for which was, and I quote... Diet is the number one cause of health-related problems in the world. I figured I could put a dent in that problem and make some money at the same time. This was all in service of a concept he called the blue jeans of food, meaning a food item that everyone embraces. The dill burrito, however, never really seemed to catch on. Surprising. With Adams eventually selling off the intellectual property and leaving the business behind, adding that the mineral fortification was hard to disguise, and because of the veggie and legume content, three bites of the dill burrito made you fart so hard, your intestines formed a tail. Uh, um, Keep keep in uh, mind, that's him describing something he created and put his name on. um, I feel like he created this with the intent to just be an asshole. Um, <laughs> why? I, was this sold at like 7-Eleven or like... I'm not sure where it was sold. I, I, I've never actually seen one. I, I feel like that would have been something sold at like really shitty places that only shitty people would go to. Not that I... I, I love 7-Eleven, so I'm shitty, but like, you know what I mean. The New York Times even went as far as saying it could have been designed only by a food technologist or by someone who eats lunch without much thought to taste. Now, outside of other businesses in the food and drink realm, like his ownership of a small cafe, Adams's next big venture was the creation of the startup WinHub. Uh, we've already discussed this at the start of the show, since this is what he was promoting in the aftermath of the shooting at the Gilroy Garlic Festival, but it's a bit more complicated than just that. I'm not going to pretend to fully understand what WinHub has to offer. And in fact, I feel like that uh, honestly is a problem with the business itself. In order to get a basic understanding as a layperson of what they offer, I resorted to other people's blogs descriptions. One post by onemorecupofcoffee.com laid it out like this. WinHub is the already functioning array of apps and products by Scott Adams. The apps are centered around the idea of optimizing work and avoiding business situations, which make the Dilbert comics funny but are no fun in real life. WinHub has specialized software for for presenting events on a timeline in a creative way, driving projects and developing ideas on a timeline. The thing I most know it for is uh, the interface, where experts in a particular subject can offer themselves for interviews and sell that access, basically. Around 2017, However, they introduced a cryptocurrency aspect to all of this. Again, I, I am not an expert in such things, but David Gerard, I think that's this person's name, David Gerard, author of Attack of the 50-Foot Blockchain, had this to say. In chapter 9 of the book, I list conditions for an ICO to possibly be useful. Number one, if you have a technical problem that requires decentralized cryptographically verified tokens. If it doesn't need tokens, they shouldn't be bolted on. Number two, if the tokens are directly usable on the platform itself. Three, if at least a proof of concept of the technology verifiably exists. Four, it also helps if the idea is even plausible as a business. Now later he adds, 
It's not clear it satisfies criterion one. This is him talking about WinHub. WinHub is at the center of the arrangement anyway, so this could be done uh, much more efficiently with a centralized database. For the experts selling services, these single company special purpose tokens would be clearly inferior to being paid in actual money. Adams's pitch to initial token buyers, and by extension to the experts who will be paid in these tokens, is when tokens, that's what he calls them, when tokens are not an investment vehicle, but because they will be artificially limited in quantity, their value is expected to fluctuate based on customer demand for the WinHub interface app, i.e. an expectation of future profits from the efforts of others on an investment now. The white paper also suggests hypothetical future use of the WIN token as a centrally controlled cryptocurrency. The reception, even from Adams's own fans commenting on the blog post, can't be described as positive. The blockchain jargon seems to have obscured the fact that this is just an offering for a risky security. Richard Barnes's comment summarizes the general response. Number one, I am too stupid to know what most of these words mean. An excellent writer called Scott Adams warned me to be skeptical of people selling via confusion. Number two, I own this orange book warning me about this guy called Scott Adams who fails at 90% of things he does. Apparently the other 10% win big. He seems like a nice guy and the book is well worth the $10, but I don't like the odds for giving him my money. None of this is to say that the business isn't viable. I have no idea how well the company is doing, but some of the decisions I've come across have been strange, including the use of the shooting at the Gilroy Garlic Festival as a commercial, which again, he argues can be used without charging any money and just wants to help in the aftermath of the murders. But let's look back at this tweet. If you were a witness to the hashtag Gilroy Garlic Festival shooting, please sign on to Interface by WinHub and then in parentheses, free app, and you can set your price to take calls. Use keyword Gilroy, winhub.com. Using the phrase set your price isn't the type of phrase I would use when trying to persuade others to use your app for free to get your information out. This is the one phrase he says he regrets and it stands in stark contrast to a similar post he made nearly a year prior. In an October 17th, 2018 post to his blog, Adams revealed that his stepson had died of what seemed like an overdose. Now I'm going to quote directly from this. We're waiting for the coroner's report to confirm. His primary drug of addiction was fake Xanax pills that are widely available and almost always contain fentanyl. Fentanyl killed Michael Jackson. Fentanyl killed Prince. Fentanyl killed Tom Petty. Fentanyl probably killed half of the 72,000 Americans who died of drug overdoses in 2017. For reference, fewer than 59,000 Americans in military service died during the entire Vietnam War. Most fentanyl comes from illegal Chinese drug labs, according to our government. Mexico is the second biggest source. I call them hashtag fentanyl China and hashtag fentanyl Mexico. Those are their brand identities now, at least to me. About 72,000 families come around to that opinion every year. The Trump administration is acting aggressively against this epidemic, but it's a long, hard fight. So I wondered how I can help. I have a plan. My stepson often complained that it was hard to find a sponsor when he needed one most, when the urge to use was greatest. I think we can solve the problem by the end of the week with your help. Here's how. I'm co-founder of a startup called WinHub. Our newest app is called Interface by WinHub, and it's available for both Apple and Android. 
The app allows anyone to sign up as an expert on any topic whatsoever, and people looking for an advice can immediately connect with a video call via the app. We hide the personal contact information from both sides. The app is free to download, and it takes about one minute to sign up as an expert. The idea I'm pitching here is to attract volunteer sponsors to sign up to take calls from anyone in need. If enough sponsors sign up, an addict can reach a live person to talk them through their crisis via an immediate video connection. See, Adams made it very clear in this earlier post that it is a service that can be used without exchange of money and to help in a crisis. Now, I have no doubt in my mind he was going through a great deal of pain and his anger and sadness were there while writing. But this serves to highlight how he approaches the two situations. And I think this disparity is noteworthy considering the rest of his actions. In particular, his use of the last main subject I want to talk about in regards to him, his blog. Oh, geez. <laughs> since, since the early 2000s, his posts have occupied a confounding place between mundane nonsense and absolute batshit insanity. See, in 2006, in a post which has since been deleted, Adams wrote, I'd also like to know how the Holocaust death total of 6 million was determined. Oh, is it the sort of number that is so well documented with actual names and perhaps a Nazi paper trail that no historian could doubt its accuracy, give or take a 10,000? Or is it like every other LRN, large round number, that someone pulled out of his ass and it became true by repetition? Does the figure include resistance fighters and civilians who died in the normal course of war, or just the Jews rounded up and killed systematically? No reasonable person doubts that the Holocaust happened, but wouldn't you like to know how the exact number was calculated just for context? Without that context, I don't know if I should lump the people with, uh, who think the Holocaust might have been exaggerated for political purposes with the Holocaust deniers. If they are equally nuts, I'd like to know that. I want context. So... <laughs> The issue here is that Adams is getting really close to the same tactics used by anti-Semites and Holocaust deniers. Love that. Often when I'm curious about, about how some piece of history has been determined, I just Google it. By putting this out publicly without doing a bit of research, he puts out the same type of misinformation and questions that benefits that those hate groups. I don't think that's intentional or malicious. I mean, it might be, but I do think that this and the example from before show a shocking lack of introspection and forethought, which just seems to continue. There are plenty of examples that are just different pieces struggling with concepts like evolution or atheism, often building straw man arguments to take down or rambling and coming to no real conclusion. That's most of them, by the way. <laughs> but as the years have gone on, some troubling things have bubbled to the surface. While discussing misrepresentation of science and media and the general public being out of step with scientific consensus, Adams wrote, I think science has earned its lack of credibility with the public. If you kick me in the balls for 20 years, how do you expect me to close my eyes and trust you? If a person doesn't believe climate change is real, despite all the evidence to the contrary, is that a case of a dumb human or a science that has not earned credibility? We humans operate on pattern recognition the pattern science uh, serves up, thanks, uh, thanks to its winged monkeys in the media, is something like this. Step one, we are totally sure that the answer is X. Step two, oops, X is wrong, but Y is totally right. Trust us this time. Science isn't about being right every time, or even most of the time. It is about being more right over time and fixing what it got wrong. So how is a common citizen supposed to know when science is done and when it is halfway to done, which is the same as being wrong? 
Now, this, as you might imagine, isn't really how the scientific process works. And blaming scientists for the media's cherry-picking of studies or purposefully misrepresenting data by those with agendas is a strange argument to make. This becomes even more strange when we come to another infamous blog post. On March 8, 2017, Adams posted how to convince skeptics that climate change is a problem and never really follows up with uh, that that premise. Instead, he states that he believes climate scientists because he plays the odds, argues that he is only interested in the psychology and persuasion on both sides, and lists all of the science he doesn't understand under the guise of persuasion mistakes. Now, I want to take a quick look at some of what he said, such as, Stop telling me the models, plural, are good. If you told me one specific model was good, that might sound convincing. But if climate scientists have multiple models and they all point in the same general direction, something sounds fishy. If climate science is relatively settled, wouldn't we all use the same models and assumptions? And why can't science tell me which one of the different models is the good one so we can ignore the less good ones? What's up with that? If you can't tell me which model is better than the others, why would I believe anything about them? And the thing he doesn't seem to grasp or is refusing to grasp is the use of many models predicting the same outcome makes the prediction more likely and provides a more robust understanding of how that plays out. And and, and like, you wouldn't just want to do one test. You wouldn't want to have like one thing that like that points to something. Like you need to have multiple models. Yeah. Otherwise, it's useless. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and now... That's not the end of what I want to highlight, since he also says, stop telling me the climate models are excellent at hindcasting, meaning they work when you look at history. That is also true of financial models, and we know financial models cannot predict the future. We also know that investment advisors like to show you their pure luck past performance to scam you into thinking they can do it in the future. To put it bluntly, climate science is using the most well-known scam methods, predicting the past, to gain credibility. That doesn't mean climate models are scammed. It only means scientists picked the least credible way to claim credibility. Were there no options for presenting their case in a credible way? So that's two things that he has now argued against. Uh, The use of many models, which is a way of gaining credibility. And also, if you look at like the past, it can help you understand what's going to happen in the future. Another way of gaining credibility. And he's saying that both of them are wrong. So in essence, he tried comparing prediction models for global warming to financial models and decided that since financial models cannot predict the future, neither can models made from very predictable long-term observable phenomena. Even further on, he asks for accurate economic models that demonstrate effects on states of affairs, something not really in the economic expertise wheelhouse, then states economic models are worthless. So he's just all over the place with what he wants from science. This is like crazy to even listen to because it just sounds like unreal to me. And all of this can be forgiven as misinformed or reactionary writing. After all, I don't tend to go to comic writers or artists for intense scientific debate. I mean, I'm not saying that they can't, but that's not who I go to. Like, first off, I would go to someone who's like an expert in that field. And I would, I mean, I wouldn't debate them, but I would listen to them debate someone else. Yeah. Uh, but it does help further illustrate that exact lack of introspection and forethought that I mentioned earlier, which is essential for what I'm about to highlight next. 
In a 2011 entry into his blog, Adams took on the topic of men's rights and did so in a very strange way. On the one hand, he told men who felt felt personally attacked by the push for equality in the workplace and women's rights in general to get over it, you bunch of pussies. But on the other hand, his reasoning is deeply flawed and more than just a little fucked up. Quoting Adams' own words... The reality is that women are treated differently by society for the exactly the same reason that children and the mentally handicapped are treated differently. It's just easier that way for everyone. You don't argue with a four-year-old about why he shouldn't eat candy for dinner. You don't punch a mentally handicapped guy even if he punches you first. And you don't argue when a woman tells you she's only making 80 cents to your dollar. It's the path of least resistance. You save your energy for more important battles. Earlier in the same post, he argued that the wage gap between men and women is the result of men getting better results than women, and on average, men negotiate pay differently and approach risk differently than women, before further attributing the lower number of women in upper management positions to an unwillingness to sacrifice family time in exchange for career advancement. Now, he received a ton of backlash for his his positions here and eventually deleted the post entirely but it's not hard to find archived copies to see his words. I mean, that's what I did. For most people, this might seem like a chance to stop and reflect on things we've said, and maybe the ideas that formed and um, why those were harmful to others and what about ourselves could be improved to not do this again. But not Scott Adams. Later in the year, he authored another entry titled Pegs and Holes, which I will quote. Oh my God. Now consider human males. No doubt you have noticed an alarming trend in the news. Powerful men have been behaving badly, e.g. tweeting, raping, cheating, and being offensive to just about everyone in the entire world. The current view of such things is that men are to blame for their own bad behavior. And that seems right. Obviously, we shouldn't blame the victims. I think we all agree on that point. Blame and shame are society's tools for keeping things under control. The part that interests me is that society is organized in such a way that the natural instincts of men are shameful and criminal, while the natural instincts of women are mostly legal and acceptable. In other words, men are born as round pegs in a society full of square holes. Whose fault is that? Do you blame the baby who didn't ask to be born male? Or do you blame the society that brought him into the world, all round pegged and turgid, and said, here's your square hole? The way society is organized at the moment, we have no choice but to blame men for bad behavior. If we allowed men to act like unrestrained horny animals, all hell would break loose. All I'm saying is that society has evolved to keep males in a state of continuous unfulfilled urges, more commonly known as unhappiness. No one planned it that way. Things just drifted in that direction. Um, can I... Uh, so, square hole. Um, w- what is that referring to? Is, is... It, it's, he's using a metaphor um, there. That he's saying that, like, as a man, you cannot fit in. Uh, and we're blaming men for not being able to fit in even though it's like that's not in their nature. Love this. Love this. So Adams doubled down on baffling ideas about men and women, essentially saying that if you're a man, it is natural to want to rape or cheat, and this is not the same for women. Men's desires, 
That's that's what he's saying. That's what that entire like whole uh, post was about. Uh, men's desires are to act like unrestrained, horny animals, and society keeps them left unfulfilled. To his credit, he does say that these urges are wrong, but it's still an uncomfortable notion to believe. He's he's essentially saying that like men all have these like weird desires to rape and cheat and and, and do things that are not acceptable in society. Uh, and, or I would argue just in general, like not, not, they're not good things. And he says they're wrong, but he says that like all men are basically born with these, uh, inclinations. And I would say like, there is, I mean, there is something to be said about like someone wanting something and, uh, not really caring about other people. And I would say that men tend to be fall into that category more often than not. But it's also a weird thing to be like, all men want to rape because like, no, I have no intention of ever doing that. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't understand yeah. his, his, his stance. Maybe, maybe it's like the idea that like, I don't think anyone, unless you're crazy and have a legitimate problem, I don't think anyone uh, really ever fantasizes that unless you do, because there are people who do. But I think maybe he's just saying it in a way like it's an urge that men will have when put into situations. Not saying I agree with that. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, this is an uncomfortable uh, area to talk about it's because so, it's such a weird area too. Because like I don't want to be like crass or anything, but no, that's kind of what I think he's getting at. Though is that like men are forced to suppress these things until they're put into the situation. I, I that's a, 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 a better way of looking at it than, uh, I've been able to really, uh, uh, get my mind wrapped around. Not saying I sympathize or, or agree with it or anything because honestly, some bullshit, but Yeah. Uh, this gets further explored as the years go on. First in his response to Rush Limbaugh calling Sandra Fluke, who was advocating for the inclusion of uh, contraceptives and employer insurance programs, a slut. When Adams defended this action by saying, my interpretation of events is that Limbaugh saw Fluke as a capable adult and a public figure tough enough to handle some harsh language. Which this, by the way, that's also uh, the whole Sandra Fluke thing is going to come up uh, in the next episode about the Punisher. So there you go. Oh, connected. Look at that. Then in 2015, Adams wrote an entry titled Global Gender War, in which he argues that radical Islam is not a problem in women-controlled countries like the United States before continuing. When I go to dinner, I expect the server to take my date's order first. I expect the server to deliver her meal first. I expect to pay the check. I expect to be the designated driver or at least manage the, the transportation for the evening. And on the way out, I will hold the door for her and then open the door to the car. When we get home, access to sex is strictly controlled by the woman. If the woman has additional preferences in terms of temperature, beverages, and whatnot, the man generally complies. If I fall in love and want to propose, I am expected to do so on my knees to set the tone for the rest of the marriage. Personally, I don't go on dates, so the story above is just an example. But if I go to dinner with a female business associate, the story usually plays out the same way. 
The difference is that she might pick up the check if we are talking business and the night ends earlier. I won't reopen the discussion of gender pay imbalance in this post. I'll just summarize by saying that well-informed feminists don't see much gender discrimination in the data. So if you think women in the United States are paid less for the same work, please take it up with the well-informed feminists. I'm just reporting what they say. Which uh, I would say is uh, a citation needed for that. Uh, He then goes on to describe how women are are interrupted during meetings, but adds, for full context, I interrupt anyone who talks too long without adding enough value. If most of my victims turn out to be women, I am still assumed to be the problem in this situation, not the talkers. Uh, Now, I want to make it clear that my goal was to quote as little as possible from these entries, but some things just need to be read verbatim in order to understand exactly what he is saying. So I have one last quote from the same piece. Lay it on me. While I'm being politically incorrect, let me describe to you the mind of a teenage boy. Our frontal lobes aren't complete. We don't imagine the future. Our bodies want sex more than we want to stay alive. Literally, lonely boys tend to be suicidal when the odds of future female companionship are low. So, if you are wondering how men become cold-blooded killers, it isn't religion that is doing it. Deny them sex. Yeah. If you put me in that situation, I can say with confidence, I would sign up for suicide bomb duty. And I'm not even a believer. Men like hugging better than they like killing. But if you take away my access to hugging, I will probably start killing just to feel something. I am designed that way. I am a normal boy and I make no apology for it. So that is, that is what Scott Adams has to say about being a man and his general thoughts on women. Women run America. Women control sex. Men are horny animals who can't control themselves and will kill if they don't get intimacy. If any of that sounds familiar, it's because this is the exact type of language used by the incel community, which is alarming since they are directly responsible for at least four mass murders in North America alone. Involuntary celibates are a predominantly online subculture of full of hate and often characterized by resentment, misogyny, racism, narcissism, self-loathing, and entitlement. They oppose feminism and women's rights, often coupling these with anti-Semitism because of course they do, and talk often of and sometimes promote suicide. So you kind of get an idea of like where his mentality, he may not be aligned with these people, but if you go through all of his posts, he is ticking these off. The misogyny, the racism, the narcissism, the self-loathing, and the entitlement. All of those things. Are, are, are being hit by his own posts and, and the men's rights thing that he keeps bringing up for some reason. But this isn't the only community Scott Adams has found himself oddly a champion for. And not surprisingly, this starts with similar logic. You see, in 2016, Adams decided to post about what he saw as the biggest unreported story of the election. The humiliation of the American male. In his post, Adam stated that a V-neck sweater is the uniform of a man who is owned by a woman, which is something brought to the forefront of his mind by a commercial for a dishwasher detergent. He further argues, many of you can't talk about this topic without being accused of sexism, losing your jobs, and being cast out of your social groups. But I can talk about it because I endorse Hillary Clinton for president. I did that for my personal safety because I live in California, but still... I'm on the progressive side now. That gives me some extra freedom of speech. 
If you are following the election polls, you know that Clinton has greater support from women while Trump has greater support from men. Trump probably can't win the presidency unless he gets massive voter turnout from American men. Will that happen? The dishwasher soap commercial should give you a hint of how big that turnout might be. You might not notice the size of the coming tsunami because American men generally don't voice their humiliation in public. That would just make it worse. But in the privacy of the polling booth, the men who don't talk are free to act. You can criticize Donald Trump on many dimensions. You can say he's not really a great businessman. You can say he's offensive. You can say he lies. You can hate his position on issues. You can say he has insufficient policy details. And lots more. But I think we all agree that Melania never asks Donald to go back to the store because he's too dumb to buy the right kind of soap on the first try. I predict that you will see the largest male turnout of any presidential election in American history. And like to Adams's credit, he does state that he believes Hillary has done a lot for women in the United States, but he does this all while saying he is endorsing Hillary for his personal safety, not because he agrees with her. And fast forward a couple of months and Adams posts some more about this election. He claims the Democratic National Convention represented a celebration that men's role in society is permanently diminished because the convention was held in an oppressive, impressive venue that was in all likelihood designed and built mostly by men and that men got to watch it all at home in homes designed and built mostly by men thanks to the technology that was designed and built mostly by men, which causes men's testosterone to drop. Um, which didn't happen. I mean, I mean, I mean, would that be the worst thing to happen? <laughs> <laughs> all throughout the time, uh, all throughout this time, he continued writing about what he saw as Trump's mastery of persuasion skills. In essence, he thought Trump's consistent mocking and insults caused the general public to forget about the issues. And that was his plan all along. On the flip side of this, he claimed Hillary Clinton was causing the country to, become, to compare Trump to Hitler and therefore pacify any qualms anyone would have with assassinating him if he were to win the election. For this reason, he didn't feel comfortable supporting Trump because he felt that he would be high on the list of follow-up targets. Aside from all of this, he continued to correctly predict Trump would win, and in late September of 2016, when he posted a piece titled, Why I Switched My Endorsement from Clinton to Trump, his reasoning uh, boils down mostly to Hillary wanted to raise taxes on estates over $500 million, which he argued is confiscation of property. His belief that Hillary's health was failing, and several arguments which all kind of amount to he thinks Trump is a master persuader. He never once mentions that he suddenly felt safe to support Trump or what caused this paranoia to begin with. Since the election and Donald Trump taking office as the 45th president of the United States, Adams's Twitter has become a daily advertisement for the administration. He has written about the speech Donald Trump gave calling uh, those on both sides good people after the Charlottesville march of neo-Nazis, white supremacists, fascists, and other racists. You might remember this rally was the one where a car driven by one of the racists rammed into a crowd, killing and injuring many. Adams called the coverage of the speech a hoax played up by the media to take, make Trump look like a racist. He also became a guest of far-right conspiracy theorist, vitamin-selling, evangelical, and all-around angry man, Alex Jones. Now, I was originally going to just leave it at that, but I, I happened to reach out to the guys that run Knowledge Fight 
And their show has been analyzing Alex Jones and the various uh, ways in which he lies, misrepresents, and plays to fears for several years. If anyone understands the nature of this show and the poor judgment involved in associating with it, it's them. So I got their permission to play a sample from an episode where I felt they succinctly described the issues with Alex Jones and the people that he has on. An important element of the story uh, is one that perhaps can't really be told by regular news outlets. And honestly, it might be a minor point, but I consider it to be very key. And that is that Alex Jones and InfoWars are compatible with so many different kinds of extremism and will never, ever do anything to de-radicalize someone. If you're someone who thinks that the Jews control the world, you'll hear so many things that resonate with your beliefs and Alex's rhetoric. You can tell yourself that he's smart enough to be subtle so the powerful Jews don't kick him off the air, and that's why he's not overt like you would like him yep. to be. If you're someone who's inclined towards Islamic extremism, Alex will provide you with all the anti-American government rhetoric you're looking for. And just for good measure, you'll hear constant denials of high-profile instances of terrorism, saying that they're actually the government attacking itself. If you're a white supremacist, you'll get your fill of white victimhood narratives all day long, accompanied by an insistence that these white identity narratives aren't racist. They're common sense. If you're a militia weirdo, Alex has you covered with all the revisionist American history you need to justify your belief that one day you'll be forced to nobly kill your fellow citizens in order to bring back the glory of the Republic. When I hear a report that a person driven by extremist ideology ended up committing a horrible act, and they, uh, you know, I hear that they were a fan of Alex's, my immediate response is, eh, that makes sense. That doesn't mean that Alex is fully or even partially responsible for what they do, but it's foolish for us not to recognize Alex for what he is, or at least what he was for many years, and that is a radicalization pipeline. So whether or not Scott wants to admit it, these are the people he associates with, and this directly reflects on both his views and his character. He will talk to anyone that will listen, regardless of ideology, and he will go to bat for those that give him attention. This is part of why he has such a fascination with bad ideas. It's classical conditioning. He feels a certain way about a topic and decides that this must be valid. And when he is challenged, he gets attention, thus rewarding him for his behavior. When someone agrees with him, he feels even more validated, and it just continues. All of this helps explain why he developed such a fascination with Donald Trump. In fact, his appearance on The Alex Jones Show was to promote his book, Win Bigly, Persuasion in a World Where Facts Don't Matter, where he again attributed Trump's win to mastery of persuasion and spends the rest of the book analyzing his tactics, essentially concluding that facts can't win arguments, but emotions can. He continued, however, to claim object objectivity, describing himself as both libertarian, minus all the crazy stuff, which I would argue just... <laughs> Doesn't make sense. <laughs> oh, that was a good one. Uh, and something he describes as ultra-liberal, which he also just does not define. And all of this was in contrast to how the book was received. Politico claimed it to be an oxygen-free cubicle into which is piped a barking infomercial for the president. But that's not all that was said. Forbes speculated that Adams was using the opportunity presented by Trump to protect his own career as the newspaper industry declined, essentially positioning himself as relevant and finding a new path to make money. And I don't find this to be too far off. Now, I'm going to quote from a Bloomberg article. 
When Adams began writing about Trump, it surprised his friends and colleagues who'd always consider him, considered him to be liberal on social issues. When he told me about Trump, I was so disappointed because I respect this guy so much, said Stephen Pastis, the creator of Pearls Before Swine, who credits Adams with discovering his strip and making it popular. I definitely get asked by other syndicated cartoonists, and the questions are not good, what's happening to him? Why is he supporting Trump? One explanation, Pastis says, is that Adams simply craves attention. Cartoonists are addicted to reaction, and I don't know whether Scott would admit it, but I know it's true. And Adams' own follow-up is, of course I crave attention, plus it's my job. That part is not in dispute. But I think Stefan's quote were from before election day, when people still thought I was nuts to predict a Trump win. Today, I think Stefan would add a second hypothesis. I did it because I thought I was right, and it seemed important for me to share with the world what I could see coming from a mile away. Plus, I crave attention. It was a twofer. Uh. And that, that is Scott Adams. In his own book, he even says that in his view, successful people hold one important trait. Lack of fear of embarrassment. He wants desperately to be in control of his life and therefore cannot admit to embarrassment. He must double down on his claims and must be shameless at all times which lends itself well to his views on positive thinking. If he is successful, it is because he has accomplished it. If you aren't, it's because you aren't doing enough. Shed your shame and be like him, someone who must constantly lie and find ways to self-promote in order to be successful. That is Scott Adams. And that's the end of our episode. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You can find more information, including all of the sources for today's episodes at comicallypedantic.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram by searching at PedanticCast and at Derek L. Chase on both platforms. New episodes come out most Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at comicallypedantic.com. This show is entirely listener-supported, so if you'd like to support this show, help us stay ad-free, and possibly be mentioned on air, you can check out the Patreon link at the top at www.comicallypedantic.com. If you have comments or questions, you can send them in text or audio recording to comicallypedantic at gmail.com. Please indicate if you'd like your name or question read on the air. And if you, uh, if you haven't, check out the wonderful work being done over on the show Knowledge Fight. I truly appreciate them letting me use the clip for this show. And it, I'm not being hyperbolic. It is my favorite podcast to listen to. He's always listening to it, so... We will be back next week with a deep dive into the time The Punisher turned black. But until then, you can find more exciting adventures at your local comic shop.